Hey, this is Brendan Gersall from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited. I have a word for us today. I, I am really Really excited. In fact, I have a word that I wasn't planning on doing, but the Lord was, and this is exciting. I'm excited to share it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'm going to do something. I want to make this kind of a scripture sandwich, and we're really just going to hang out in 1 Thessalonians 5. But before we get there, I want to tell you about Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament because in it is the, is the famous passage about the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son. But oftentimes we miss it in its context. A lot of the time we get so lost in the beauty of this story, which it is a beautiful story, and we hear ourselves and we see ourselves, all of us, like sheep have been led astray. We've all been there. We know what it is to have to return and repent. But we miss the greater context. And I want to just give us a picture this morning, and I want to just sort of set this in front of us. As we kind of cook up and serve God's word, I want to sort of put this on the burner and let it simmer while we talk about 1 Thessalonians 5. But it tells us in Luke chapter 15 Something significant had happened. Jesus had been ministering, and now thousands and thousands of people were following him, and he had become a serious threat to the, to the religious authorities of his day because he was doing things that were contrary to how they understood things should be in God's kingdom. And so we find out in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus had been drawing a, a, a crowd of troublemakers, people who the religious system of the day had kind of written off and separated themselves from, Jesus was drawing them. He was like a magnet for people who were troubled. And so it tells us in Luke chapter 15 that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And I wish I had time to unpack just how vile tax collectors were to the first century Jewish mind. But just you need to know that there was no more of a group of people that were more revolting to the, to the religious leaders than tax collectors and then just a multitude of sinners, prostitutes, drunkards, all of it. And they're gathering around Jesus, and then it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious rulers of the day, they muttered, they criticized. They said, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They didn't like how Jesus was interacting with these people, and so it was on the heels of that, Luke tells us, that Jesus gets up and he tells them a parable. In fact, he tells us three about what God and what the kingdom is like, and specifically what they're being like. He goes on and he says, the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And out of the hundred sheep, one was lost. And the shepherd left the 99 behind and went and found the one. And in his great joy, brought it back. And then he says, or it's like a woman who lost a coin. And it was a very precious coin to her. And she turned her home upside down until she found that one coin. This is what the kingdom is like. And then he goes on and he tells the famous parable of a father who had two sons. And he says, the one son, the younger son, came to the father one day and said, I want my inheritance. Which is to say, I don't care what happens to you. I want what's coming to me. And he was rightfully the heir of one third of his father's, in father's household. And, the, and Jesus said that the father obliged him and gave him one third. He, he literally gave him one third of all of his riches and possessions. And then Jesus said the boy went off and squandered it made horrible mistakes, and then one day he's literally eating pig slop, and he has the realization that even servants in my father's house do better than I'm doing. 
And so he decides to go back to the father's house. And some of you know the story. It's so beautiful. Jesus said the father saw the son coming. And while he was a long way off, I can't even tell it without getting emotional, ran out to him and threw his arms on his neck and kissed him all over and said, he didn't even let the kid talk. He just said, bring out the fattened calf, slay the fattened calf. We're going to have a feast. Bring a robe and bring the family ring and put it on him. My son is home. It's this beautiful story, but that's actually not the primary point of Luke chapter 15. Remember, Jesus was responding to the Pharisees' attitude. And then it goes to this other part that we often miss in Luke chapter 15, the story of the father with two sons. And it says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And the father has killed the fattened calf because he is, he's back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him. Interesting, he went out to both sons. And he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And the question I want us to think about, and I just want to set this on the back burner. I'm going to get like Jamie Oliver on you. We're going to set that to sizzle, simmer, or whatever, and we're going to put it back here, and we're going to work on the other thing. But I want you to start to ask the question, what was the point that Jesus was getting at? What was the point of the elder brother conversation? What was Jesus trying to show the Pharisees and show us about himself and about God and about ourselves? Let's just set that back and set it to simmer, and we'll come back to that. We are right now in a series and in a season we're calling As For Me In My House. And we've been talking to the Lord and listening in this time, we're saying, of, of just unique changes in the world. Amen? I mean, this is strange times at very least, and I think changing times at most, and we're watching this unfold, and we've realized that we're in a window as the people of God where we really need to sort of nail down what's most important. As the things change, we need to explore what should never change. Amen? And so we've been asking the question, God, what do you want us to establish or to remain priority in your house? And we've been having these conversations about as for me and my house. And today I was going to preach a message on the authority of God's word, on this idea of as for me and my house, the Lord has spoken and we will listen. And we're going to talk about that. And I don't think there could be a more important conversation for the people of God to have than in a time where words are being redefined and revised and weaponized and where woke ideology is creeping into the church and people think that they can edit the word of God. I think it's critical that we open this up and we say, what is the word of God to us and how should we be responding? And I had a message. In fact, I think I have two and I was ready to go, but then I went for a bike ride Monday morning. I was out on my, my dad's old bike. I didn't have my own bike. And I was on my dad's old bike, holding my dog on the leash. If anybody's seen me, yes, yes, I, I don't want to run with my dog sometimes. So I run him and bike alongside of him. And so I'm out for this bike ride on Monday morning, and I've got my headphones on, and I'm listening to Scripture. And I've been spending a lot of time through the letters of Paul, because in the letters of Paul, there's a lot of instruction about how the church is supposed to operate. And I got to this part, and I was sort of half listening. Anybody ever do audio Bible, audio Bible for the win online, anybody? 
I love it. You should do it. I just like having scripture playing. And so I'm sort of half listening, half looking at the birds and whatever, just, you know, biking around. And then this, this, this passage creeps up and it arrests me. In 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm just sort of going along and the narrator gets to this point and he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish, admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Maybe that got my attention. Say, hey, they, and then, then it went to this. And this is really the part I want to hone in on. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. So he's talking about how we as Christians are supposed to interact with, with, God, with pastors and the people God has given us that speak into us. And then he says, here's how you need to interact with each other. You need to be at peace among yourself. Be at what? Say it. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he goes on and he breaks it down. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but what's this word? Always, and in the Greek it means always, <laughs> always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this just sort of, it just nailed me. Anybody ever just be reading the scriptures and just sort of half reading it and then just zap? And it just hit me and I was trying to think, you know, what, what, what is he, what's, what's Paul getting at here? Well, he's talking not just about how we're supposed to carry each other's burdens. We know that. We know we're supposed to look after each other in the body of Christ. We talked about unity. We talked about carrying each other's burdens. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about living at peace. And specifically, he's talking about people who are troublemakers. And how we're supposed to return evil with good. And how we're supposed to be patient with each other. And how we're supposed to be at peace amongst ourselves with one another. We're supposed to actually do the work of peacemaking. And I don't know if it just caught me because I've been in a season where I've found myself being required to respond to things that I want to respond one way. And God is calling me to respond another way. Some of those things are in the newspaper. Um, but I've said, to, I've said to Melanie a bunch of times over the last like 16 months it would seem. 14 months anyway. It's like, I feel like I am a drama magnet. And just drama finds me every day. And I've had moments with my wife and moments before the Lord where I'm just like, I don't know if I can go another round of this. I don't know if I can extend myself again. I don't know if I can take the high road again. And the Lord sort of swept in to me on this word and in this scripture. And he convicted something about me. You see, we've been talking about the fact that we're in a transition time as a church and how I believe worldwide God is pruning the church. He's actually cutting the fat out of the church. And I believe he's doing that with all my heart. He's bringing a remnant together to do a new and greater work. God, God always prunes to give new growth. And that's what's happening. But the Lord convicted me there as I'm riding my bike. Gling, gling. He's, he convicted me. And he said, son, you are looking at this window with eyes that I don't have. And you are holding on for dear life until we get through this time. And you are imagining a world and you are imagining a church that is drama free. And that all the people who have those issues that keep coming to you and all those things you keep having to deal with and all those times where I'm asking you to make peace with others and to not repay evil for evil, all, you're, you're imagining that when this season is over, and this season will come to an end, but you're imagining a church that doesn't have people in it. 
And you're imagining a church that doesn't have any drama or any issue or any need to bring peace. And he reminded me, son, I don't just take the high road, I go low. I will actually go into dysfunction and be a peace agent. I am the one who will actually take on someone else's struggle upon myself. And he reminded me of a conversation I had with my mentor a few years ago. He actually published this in his book, and many of you read it uh, in his marriage book. But he was talking about his estranged relationship with his father. And I, I got to be there in the room when he was kind of unpacking, you know, the Lord is leading me to reach out to my father and try to mend the relationship. And he says, I've spent 40 years of my life knowing it was his fault. He was the dad that failed me as a son. My door's open. If he wants to come to me, he can. And he told me, the Lord spoke to me, Kevin Myers, my, my mentor, and he said, you know what, son, you forgive, but I restore. You forgive people for what they did, and you leave the door open, and you're open to mending things, but I actively pursue restoration. I'm the initiator. I'm the one who goes after. I more than just invite people to live at peace. I make peace. I'm a peacemaker. And so the Lord convicted me as I'm biking along and just this sort of thing resonated in my spirit. God doesn't simply invite us to himself. He pursues us. And he does it at his own expense. He is the type of being. He is one who never stops extending himself to those who will receive him. He didn't say, hey, I'm in heaven and everything's great here. If you can get here, the door's open. He's not just one who has an open door policy. He actually left heaven and came in pursuit of us and came into all of our dysfunction. He is the good shepherd who went after the one sheep. And y'all know sheep are dumb. You know that? Sheep are frustrating. Sheep, they can't get it right. Do we have that video? I didn't even check. Do you have that video of the sheep? Do we have it? God convicted me. He's like, I'm actually a peacemaker, and my house will be a house of peacemakers. I'm not just someone who, who stands back passively, but I actively pursue peace. I take my grace and I make peace at my own expense. I step into people's deficit and dysfunction and trouble, and I make peace for them. That's who I am. And he spoke to me, and this was not on my radar for this series. And he said, I am a peacemaker. I bring peace. I deposit myself in every situation of dysfunction and where there is lack. I do not repay evil for evil. I give what is undeserved. He is Jehovah Rapha. He brings healing into the broken. He's Jehovah Jireh. He brings provision into our debt. He is Jehovah Shalom. He is a peacemaker. That's who he is. And I believe God is calling us to plant this in our DNA right now, that as for me and my house, we will be peacemakers. People who actively make peace. There is a creative component to this where we are called to actually make peace in people's trouble. We will be a house of peacemakers. We will be a house of grace bringers. We will be a house of second and third and fourth and fifth and 10th and 20th chances. 
We will be a people who endeavor to make things right for other people. And this is what Paul was getting at in 1 Thessalonians 5. He, he paints a picture. I, I want to give you a picture, the power and the promise of what it means to be a peacemaker. I want to talk about what it looks like, where we get the power and the promise to those of us who will step out in faith. As for me and my house will be a peacemaking house. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Is everybody with me? So Paul paints the picture of a peacemaking house. He says... We urge you to be at peace among yourselves. So this is how we interact with each other within the body of Christ. And then he says, we urge you, brothers, here's the first, the first thing. Admonish the idol. He actually shows us three different categories of people in the body of Christ that are going to need your efforts at making peace on their behalf. And the first he says, admonish the idol. Everyone say admonish. Admonish the idol. What does it mean to admonish the idol? Well, in effect, if I was to give it a definition, it's to stir them up. To be a peacemaker, first and foremost, Paul and the Lord calls us to stir up the idol, to admonish them. The word admonish actually means to urge or to warn. There's a concern attached to it, even conflict. Now, those of us who are maritimers especially are a little bit conflict averse, aren't we? We are polite. Mind your business, right? The house of God is not polite. Jesus was never polite or nice. He was kind and he would say the thing that needed to be said to bring life. Amen? And we are called to admonish the idol. To actually admonish means to get in someone's space, to bring clarity, to stir them up, to get up under them a little bit to bring sobriety, to bring energy, to be the voice of truth. It's not polite. Anybody have kids? How do you admonish your kids? Son, if I got to tell you to clean your room one more time, we're going to have problems, right? Now, don't judge me. I'm sitting here, you bubble wrap world parents. Anyway, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. To admonish means to get in their space. Then he says, admonish the idol. Now, what's idol? Well, the, the, the term that Paul uses, it indicates this, this picture of being out of function. Not necessarily broken, but stalled. It's, it's not necessarily broken beyond repair, but it's not doing what it's made to do. Like, for instance, when you see a car that's in idle, you know that it can idle, but it wasn't designed to just sit there and be idle, was it? It was designed to be put in gear to press the gas and to go, Right? And this is the image that Paul paints in the church. The first people that need help in, being making, in making peace are the idol, that we are called to admonish the idol. We're, we're called to come up around Christians, believers, who have stalled in their faith. They're idling. They're not in rebellion. They're not denying Jesus. They're not saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. They're just idle. They're not intentional with it. Maybe they're not, like to use the words of Jesus in Revelation, they're neither hot nor cold. They're just, eh. Paul says peacemakers, the body of Christ, are called to actually go and find those who are idle in their faith. We actually have a leave no man behind policy. 
that we're called to actually go and to get people in gear. Did you know that that's your job? Did you know that your brother and sister, King's Church, your brother and sister are your responsibility? Did you know that? We're called to go and care for the idol. And now, why did this resonate so strongly with me? Well, I think one of the great things that the church has got to kind of figure out right now in this time of COVID is there are hundreds, in King's Church alone, hundreds of idle Christians. People we haven't seen, they're not online, they aren't in services, they're disconnected. They wouldn't say they aren't part of King's Church anymore. They wouldn't say that they don't believe in Jesus. They're just idle, they're disengaged, they're checked out. And there are hundreds. And even as I'm saying that right now, you have some friends that you know used to be pretty dialed in and now they're not. Right? Show of hands, everybody. Like, Look, you can raise your hand, they're not here. <laughs> they're not online. They're not paying attention. They stopped like last August. But here's the thing the Lord convicted me on. There are hundreds of people that knew Jesus, know Jesus, and all they need is a push. They just need a push in the right direction. And I felt like the Lord just come down on me strong to say, you are way too comfortable with how many people you're okay with falling off into oblivion. And that if you just go and you'd stir some people up, give that person a call, send them a text, go meet with that person and say, how is your soul? You know what? Some people just need to be stirred up. Some people just need a kick in the butt. Some people like, they just, like my, like my lawnmower, when I started it after winter, you know, you got to pull it like 20 times, kick it a few times, and then it got going. There are brothers and sisters in the house of God that are idle. They just need a few pulls and a couple kicks and they'll be back on point. I'm telling you, thus saith the Lord. Now, nobody goes out to find somebody this week. So Pastor Brent and God said, I need to kick you. So it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying get out there and stir some people up. Some people need a visit. Some people just need to, they just need that little spark. Amen? How many of you are grateful in your life that you have people who loved you enough to get in your face and say, hey, get back on track? We need that. And if I look back over my life, I'm the product of people who cared enough to call me on my crap. Yeah? Like, I'm, that's, that, those are the people that I want to thank most. Not people who left me alone or told me what I wanted to hear. People who love me enough to say, you're better than this, boy. You were made for more than this. Oh, you can get back on track. Come on, come with me. So I'm calling us. I feel like the Lord is calling us to get out of our comfort zone. We stir up the idol. What else do we do? I like this. And then he goes on and he says, so you're dealing with the idol. And then, then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. What's that mean? Well, if, I, if I'm going to typify it, I would say our job with these people, and there are many in our church family, especially right now in time of COVID, there are many who are faint-hearted. What's the word faint-hearted here mean? It means like despair, disillusioned afraid, discouraged. And Paul says, encourage them. What's it mean to encourage? It means to literally deposit courage, to give hope. Some people just need to borrow your faith for a season. Did you know that? Has anybody ever gone through a valley and it was somebody who'd been through it before and now they've come through it and they call you forward and because they got through it, now you can get through it? Has anybody experienced that before? Look, God doesn't put us on the mountain and the valley at the same time. Sometimes we need each other's perspective to get us through our season. 
And so God is calling us, and he's calling us to actually encourage the faint-hearted to be strength for people who are weak right now. Not weak in their lives. They're weak in spirit. They're afraid in spirit. There's a disillusionment and a fear at work in them. And Paul says, look, you need to get out there and lift up your brothers and sisters who are faint-hearted. They're running on empty. They're growing faint. Your job is to bring peace and bring hope. And look, church, let me just say this. Never underestimate the power of a spirit-filled cheerleader. Never underestimate the power of your voice when you speak the words of life. Like even right now, like, like if some of you will lean in and something will resonate in your spirit, the moment I say, it's going to be okay. Jesus is still on the throne. God will not waste this season. And God will cause all things to come together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God has plans for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Pick your head up. He is a shield about you. See and open your eyes that there are more around you, surrounding you than those who are surrounding you. That there are more for you than against you. That no weapon formed against you will prosper. That every word that Jesus has spoken will come to pass. That all the promises of God are yes and amen. Something stirs up in you, doesn't it? Just the moment you put the word of God, and I'm not saying we're not wishing on wishes and hoping in hope. We're standing on what God has said. And the moment that you come along someone and you say, hey, you can do this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. I know you feel like you can't keep going, but you can keep going. Has anybody ever had a cheerleader come along at just the right time? That's what God is calling you to do right now. It's not an open door policy. Well, I hope so-and-so gets through it. If you feel like there's somebody out there that is burdened, that might be God's indication to you to go to them and say, it's going to be all right. This might be too big for you, but it's not too big for him. Jesus is still Lord. The tomb is still empty. God is still on the throne. Jesus will come. There will come a day where there will be no more tears or mourning or sorrow. It will be joy. God will trade your sorrow for joy, mourning for dancing. It's coming. Learn how to be a cheerleader. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think right now there is a pandemic happening and there's another pandemic or epidemic called fear. And it has infected the church, y'all. I think it's time for the church to rise up and let the voice of truth and hope and optimism. If the people of God clam up because of a pandemic, who else is going to rise up and say, hey, this isn't it? Who else is going to rise up and say, hey, there, greater is he who is in me than that which is or he who is in the world? Who else is going to rise up with real hope and real optimism? We are the ones whose hope is not tied to the economy. It's not tied to my physical health. It's not tied to Canada or the United States or, or the UN. It's tied to the one who rose again. And we should be the ones who stand in faith and are quick to speak life and hope. Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. Your light cannot be hidden. No one puts a lamp on a stand and covers its shade. I think it's time for the church to start speaking hope. People who give good courage. There are folks in your peripheral. There are folks in your context who look at the same thing and they see something different. You think about Joshua and Caleb did not see the same thing the other 10 spies saw. Did they? 
When they went in and they looked at the land, they said, there's a bunch of them that said, whoa, there are giants. We want no part of that. And there were two of them that said, oh, God has given us that land. Let's go. We are supposed to be the ones that that are full of good courage. We have a different report than other people. Amen? How's your report been? Have you gotten caught up in that critical news cycle, that divisive, skeptical, afraid, go get all the toilet paper stuff? Christian has no business getting caught up in that. We are the ones who have a hope that goes beyond this life even. So he says, cheer up the faint-hearted. And then he says this, here's the third one. So he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. And then he says, help the weak. And he ties this, be patient with them all. Now, if some of you are like, you, you know, some of you are like real compassionate people, and especially when people have like physical needs or going through illness or loss, a family member passed away, you're really drawn to help them. That's actually not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about people who are weak in character, weak in spirit, weak in mentality, people who are weak, not in their body or in their life, but people who are weak in their spirit. He's talking about the spiritually weak, and he says, find the weak among you and build them up. Help the weak. Come alongside the weak and build them up. You are called to be strength for those who are weak. And now, like I said, he's not talking about someone who just needs a meal or someone who just needs to be encouraged because they're faint-hearted or someone who just needs to be admonished or somebody who needs to be served and shown the love of God. He's actually talking about people who just require a lot of freaking grace. We have a term in the church called EGRs. Extra grace required. People who just suck the life out of you. Don't look around. <laughs> Don't at anybody. This is not time to tag somebody in the, in this, in the chat. He's talking about the neediness of personalities. How many of you know? How real? How real is the Bible? That it doesn't just glaze over the fact that people are 